All right, check one, check, check one. Are we on? Okay, we're live. Our three-minute break has come to a close. And so if I could ask everybody to find their seats. Did you find it? It wasn't lost to begin with? <laughs> How's it going, Silas? Doing good? Uh, it was, but sometimes you need a five-minute break. It's like hitting the reset button so that our attention span is going to be right where it needs to be for the sermon. That's what she was telling me. So we're, we're going to have to change it to a four-minute break. By our 25th year, we'll have a half an hour in between the worship and the... <laughs> All right, well, I want to... Make sure that before we start, everybody knows there's cake, the balloons is for the celebration, and again, we're not just celebrating what it is that we've done, and we're not just celebrating what it is that you've done, but we're celebrating what it is that God has done, and what He's doing, and what He will do. I want to start this morning off with a confession. Yep. Everybody, everybody is probably based on their previous church experience, wondering, oh no, what am I in for right now? You know, this man has to make a confession. But as we learned in last week's sermon, repentance, confession being a part of repentance, should be a daily practice in the life of the Christian. And I don't have to fear my sin. I don't have to fear my shortcomings. Because I serve a God who is gracious and loving and kind and steadfast and long-suffering. And I don't have to fear my sin and my shortcomings because the people of God who follow in the footsteps of God, they reflect that same grace and mercy and love and patience and kindness and steadfastness and long-suffering. Have you ever listened to a sermon and it's just like God strung the bow released it and boom right into your heart and you're like oh that's me well have you ever had a friend listen to a sermon and then call you and say what i just heard <laughs> it really reminded me about you <laughs> sometimes it's a good thing right my buddy moved from Alaska down to Portland, joined a great church, and Tim Mackey from the Bible Project came to teach. And he was telling the congregation that he felt like a lobster or a crab who had one giant, strong claw. And with that claw, bam, he could just pinch and crush. Because his entire life, he had trained that claw to reach and to grab and to do what it was created to do to crush so that he could eat. And the other claw, it kind of looked like the guy's hand in Scary Movie. You know? For any of you who have seen Scary Movie, the deformed, shrunken hand that 
lived a life of atrophy. And what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, right? And what he said was the same thing that Tim Mackey had experienced. The strong claw represented his time in study, his time in reading, his time in researching, his time in growing in knowledge and information and data and all of the energy that he had expounded collecting that so that he could serve God and God's people. But the weak, atrophied hand, that was prayer. And he had never truly developed his prayer life. If he were being honest, he would say he didn't really know what it was like to fall on his knees or to find himself lost in moments of prayer that lasted hours or days. And my buddy called me and he was like, I really felt like God was telling me that this was true about you. <laughs> and I was like, you know what, bro? I wish I could tell you that you're wrong, but I think that God was speaking truthfully to you and He's using you to rebuke me. Prayer, saints, is a vital, it is a vital part of the Christian life. And if we don't pray, we ain't going to make it. If we don't develop the spiritual discipline of a strong prayer life, we ain't going to make it. And today's passage is all about that. So why don't we open up our ears and prepare to hear the Word of God, and then we will open up our eyes and we will prepare to read the Word of God. Let's listen to Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Luke chapter 18, parable of the persistent widow. One day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? Bow with me in a word of prayer. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will be found to have the faith? Father, we are here this morning not to hear from me. We're here to hear from you. We are going to open your word, Father. We're going to read from your word, and we are going to study your word together as a body, as a family. 
as a representative of your bride here on earth. And God, you have things to say to your church today. No different than you had things to say to what would be your church in your life and in your ministry. You are speaking to your disciples today no differently than you spoke to your disciples in your life and in your ministry. And Father, we are here to hear that voice. Your sheep, they hear your voice, they know it, and they follow it, God. You are speaking. And we want to hear from you, Lord. You give grace to the humble God, but you oppose the proud. So Father, I humbly ask that you would give me the wisdom that I need. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask for it, and you will give it. I don't want to find myself in opposition to you, Lord. I want to find myself in submission to you. As your Spirit leads, Father, give me the words that I need to speak the oracles of God. I pray that we would leave here, Father, different than we walked in through the door. And you alone have the power and the authority to do that. So we turn our hearts, our minds, our whole beings to you, God, and we ask that you would speak loud and clear this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 18, verse 1 through 8. We're in our series unpacking the parables. Luke chapter 18, verse 1 through 8 in your Bibles. We're going to put it on the screen for you right now. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. We listened to it in the New Living Translation. Let's read it. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 1. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to what? To pray and not lose heart. a good song (laughs) starting in verse 2 he Jesus said and this is where the parable proper begins in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying give me justice against my adversary For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I want us to start this morning's study, and that's what we're doing, we're studying the Word of God by looking at an outline of this parable and just making some general observations. This parable breaks down. It's fairly simple breakdown. There are 
a lot more deeper detailed outlines that you can find and I would encourage you to look if you're interested but for the sake of this morning study simplicity is going to be helpful we have the introduction and the instructions in verse 1 we should be asking who is Jesus giving his instructions to that's a great question who is his original audience And to answer that question, no different than last week, we're going to turn back to Luke chapter 17, and we're going to look at verses 20, and we're going to look at verses 22. Why? Because Daryl Bach says that if we know more about the whole, it's going to help us to better understand the particulars. Okay? And so we're going to look back And we're going to see that Jesus in verse 20 of chapter 17 is asked a question by the Pharisees. When the kingdom of God would come. But if you look at 22, after answering the Pharisees, he turns and he speaks to who? His disciples. There's no change in scene from verse 22 in chapter 17 to what we read in chapter 18. So this parable, although there are many people present, we need to understand that the direct audience that Jesus is speaking to is his disciples. This parable is intended for those who are following Jesus and his ministry. Not in opposition to it, those who are for him, not against him. The parable proper, verses 2-5, through and then Jesus makes additional remarks on the parable proper in 6-8. through Now this is a unique parable in that we find the focus of Jesus' instructions at the outset. You don't have to read through the parable or get to the end of the parable in this specific instance to know what it is that Jesus is after. He tells his audience that right out the gate. (laughs) It's different from the Good Samaritan which we studied. You go and do likewise. That was the instruction following the parable. And we find that at the end of the teaching. The wise and the foolish builders. The juxtaposition of the wise and the foolish. The house that stands and the house that falls. Those who hear and do and those who hear and do not. And you have to read all the way through this parable to grasp the teaching in its entirety. You don't get the principle or the focus of it in the beginning. You don't get it at the end. You get it as Jesus unpacks it all the way through. The Pharisee and the tax collector. We did this one last week. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Where is that located? In the end of the parable. So we have a unique teaching in the life and ministry of Jesus in this parable. Two main characters. The judge and the widow. These are two symbols. Remember, we are not going to find it a problem when there is allegory used in the parables. We are also not going to over-allegorize like the church fathers did. There's tension, okay? 
We're not going to land on one point in the parable. We're going to argue that each parable, each character in the parable can teach us a principle. We can walk away with multiple understandings from the parable, depending on which perspective we're dissecting it from. So we've got two characters. We've got the judge and the widow. These are two symbols of power and privilege and the dynamic that exists between power and privilege. You've got the unjust judge who is at the top of the class and caste system in an honor and shame culture. And you've got the widow who is at the bottom of the class and caste system alongside of the orphan and the slave. Immediately, Jesus is making a contrast. And it's our responsibility to pick up on the fact that he's making a contrast. If we look at this with a modern lens, it's not going to blow our mind the way that it blew his original audience's mind. And so we have to pump the brakes and cruise through the neighborhood, not speed through it. Okay? We're not worried with getting to the destination. We're enjoying the journey. Okay? (laughs) So we've got two symbols of the power and privilege dynamic in the class and caste system in first century Israel. Notice that Jesus' additional remarks bring us full circle back to answering the question of the Pharisees and the question of the disciples in chapter 17. So this first parable, although it is followed by a parable that discusses prayer, is kind of like the beginning of the end in bringing resolution to when the kingdom will come and when the end will come. Knowing more about the whole is going to help us better understand the particulars. Now, before we turn our attention to the text and we go verse by verse through it, I want to help to set the backdrop for what's going on here, okay? Uh, We need to understand the context. I made a joke while my wife was teasing me that context determines meaning. And we believe that around here. Context is king, okay? And so we have to understand the backdrop if we're going to understand the teaching. According to Torah, judges existed to execute what? Judgment, and hopefully a just judgment. Okay? Not just any judgment, but judges existed, according to the Torah, to execute just judgments. Their role was to maintain order in society. Remember, the tribal chieftains, as Daryl Block would refer to them as, the judges of old, They existed before Israel was a monarchy. And so their whole role was to maintain order in the midst of the nation of Israel. So God was using them to execute justice. That's what the widow is asking for in this parable. How do we know that judges existed to execute justice? Well, we can look at Exodus chapter 23. 
And we can read verse 6 through 8. I've got it right here out of the New Living Translation. In a lawsuit, you must not deny justice to the poor. Be sure never to charge anyone falsely with evil. Never sentence an innocent or blameless person to death. For I never declare a guilty person to be innocent. Take no bribes, for a bribe makes you ignore something that you clearly see. A bribe makes even the righteous person twist the truth. You want to know how we know that judges were supposed to execute justice within Israel? Because Israel abided by what? The law. Let's look at Deuteronomy. Because one generation died off in the wilderness and the next generation was coming up and they were unaware of what had took place at Sinai. They were unaware of the ten plagues and the victory that God had executed in bringing freedom to those who were enslaved. They had heard the stories, but they weren't present for them. And that's why Deuteronomy exists. It's the retelling of the law. And here's what we read. Appoint judges. There it is. Tribal chieftains. you got the 12 tribes of Israel. So you're going to have a multiplicity of judges. One judge in one tribe may not have the same authority over another tribe. That's also a key point to understand. Appoint judges and officials for yourselves from each of your tribes in all of the towns to the Lord, uh, in all the towns the Lord your God is giving you. They must judge the people how? Fairly. You must never twist justice. You notice this language similarities from the previous passage to this one? You must never twist justice or show partiality. How many of us are thankful that we serve a God who shows no partiality? Amen. Never accept a bribe, for bribes blind the eyes of the wise and corrupt the decisions of the godly. Let true justice prevail. Not just any sort of justice, but true justice. Real, authentic justice. Let true justice prevail so that you may live and occupy the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So when we say that judges existed to execute justice and they existed to maintain order within the nation of Israel, we now have a text to stand on. We're not arguing what we think. We're arguing what we know. Amen? Why? Because context determines meaning. As we can see, this is pretty clear. I don't know how, you, how, how anybody in Israel could get around the role or the function of the judge. But even with Torah being as clear as it is, how many of us believe that all the judges actually obeyed the law? <laughs> Have you read Judges? <laughs> So even though it's clear, and even though it's understandable, God put it in their laps. It doesn't equate obedience to it. And all of us should say, oh, I have that same issue in my own life. Did we start today off with repentance? With confession? Now why is all of this important? Why do we have to understand this? Well, we have to remember the original audience of Jesus, his disciples, would have been Jews who were living under the law. Jesus, according to Paul in Galatians, was born in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law. 
According to Paul in Romans, he fulfilled the righteous requirement of God. That would be the fulfillment of the law in the perfect atoning sacrifice. According to Peter, he was the spotless lamb. He was the Messiah who never sinned. According to Hebrews, he is our great high priest who made atonement once for all time. This is important because they're on this side of the cross and we're on that side of the cross and they don't have the ability to see five seconds in front of their face. They're living under the law. So when they hear about an unjust judge, their frame of reference is going to be Torah. But we have one problem. (laughs) We have to remember that in the first century, the Jews were no longer self-governing themselves. Rome had taken over the known world and they were ruling the Jews. It's unlikely, in my opinion, that this would be a Jewish judge even though he's in the parable of a Jewish rabbi. Now, why would I make that observation? We already said that knowing more about the whole helps us better understand the particulars. This judge is clearly not willing to submit their life to Torah. They don't fear God. Exodus chapter 20, verses what? 1 through 4? And they don't love their neighbor like the Levitical law commands. So we can understand that this person is not making a practice of submitting to Torah. It's unlikely that they're a Jewish judge. It's likely that the judge would have been appointed by someone like Herod or by the Roman government. Now, why would I say that? Well, the same author who wrote Luke is the same author who wrote Acts. Volume 1 is Luke. Volume 2 is Acts. And there, like I said in our introduction to the parables, the pesky book of John, saying that tongue-in-cheek, it's planted in the middle, and it constantly tries to make us forget that they're supposed to be read together. (laughs) Well, let's turn to Acts chapter 21 real quick. And let's just see what Luke, the author of this gospel that we're studying, has to say about the life of Paul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin. Under the law, he was blameless. Let's see what Luke has to say about Paul's life experience. Okay, we're in Acts chapter 21. Notice that Paul goes to Jerusalem. Where is the temple located? In Jerusalem. So Paul is not ministering in the Gentile world at this point in his life. He has returned to his home. And of course, after visiting with James in Acts chapter 21, James is like, ah, you've been causing a lot of ruckus out there, bro. People believe that you're teaching that we should reject the teachings of Moses. (laughs) That we should jettison the law. And so, because you're home, I'm going to need you to make a sacrifice, go through the purity rites, and prove to everyone around you that you're not antinomial against the law. Paul says, I'll do it. And he submits to the culture of worship in Jerusalem. Why? Because Paul will be a Jew to the Jew, 
and to the Gentile a Gentile so that he might win one to Christ. So he is comfortable with being uncomfortable. Okay? He's arrested in the temple. He goes in chapter 22 to speak to his brothers and fathers. He says, hear the defense that I now make before you. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cecilia, and he goes through his testimony about being blinded on the road to Damascus, encountering the resin, resurrected Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. What happens? All hell breaks loose. Paul is forced to testify. Who's he forced to testify to? Is he forced to testify to the Sanhedrin? To the Pharisees? To the Sadducees? No. He's forced to testify to the Roman tribunal. Are we catching the flavor of what's going on in the first century life? And how the judges who were ruling over the people were not necessarily ethnic Jews and were watching the same author of this parable recount the same reality in Paul's life. After he has to speak to the Roman tribunal, he goes before the council. Now going before the council is standing before the Sanhedrin. And he recognizes that there's a split, Sadducees and Pharisees. So he appeals to the Pharisees on account of the resurrection because he knows that the Sadducees reject the resurrection, but the Pharisees embrace it there's another uproar (laughs) because of this uproar there's a plot to kill him following this plot to kill him that he supernaturally escapes he sent to who felix the governor in acts chapter 23 and in the close of acts chapter 23 we see, I'm sorry, in the close of Acts chapter 24, we see this. But Felix, a rather having a rather acute knowledge of the way, that would be of the way of Christ, he put them off. He put off the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were from Jerusalem, who were trying to persecute Paul and have him killed, he put them off, saying when Lysis, the tribunal, comes down, that would be another Roman leader, I will decide your case. Is he working to bring justice speedily? No. Then he gave orders to the centurion that, he should, that Paul should be kept in custody but have some liberty. And that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. Now listen to this. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about the faith in Jesus Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness, Paul reasoning with Felix about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, righteousness and self-control being the very things that Felix lacked, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money, listen to this, this is the detail we're after, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. A what? A bribe. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desired to do the who a favor? The Jews a favor by leaving Paul in prison. 
Luke has set, when you read Luke next to Acts, you can see that the judge is most likely not Jewish, although he's ruling over the Jewish people. No different than Felix and Festus would rule over Paul. It sets the context that to get swift justice, you either need friends in high places or you need money. Two things the widow would not have any access to. Okay? The example allows us to get a greater understanding of what it is that Jesus' hearers already knew the things that we needed to learn. Because if we don't know these things, we can't truly understand what's going on in the parable. So it's my argument this morning that the judge is a non-Jewish government-appointed official who neither feared Yahweh nor respected man. This is a dual violation of the Torah. He neither loved God or people. And because of that, we can refer to him as an unjust judge. Now we set the backdrop for the judge and we've discussed his role in society, what the Jewish disciples' understandings would have been versus what was actually taking place in the time and in the culture. So we need to talk briefly about the widow. Now I've already mentioned, in these two characters, you have a representation of symbols who are at polar opposites. This is the power and privilege dynamic that exists within the culture in the class caste system in first century Israel. Okay? We could go over passage after passage after passage about how they're not supposed to trim the edges of the field, how they're not supposed to go through their olives and their grapes twice. Why? So that they can leave the food behind for the widow and the orphan and the sojourner. We can go through passage after passage after passage where Israel is declining to obey God and for it they are suffering the northern and the southern kingdom, destruction and exile. So what do we need to know about the widow? Well, in the ancient Near East, widows were viewed as both helpless and dependent. I said the ancient Near East. This goes all the way back to like the life of Abraham. It's not just in the first century. This is a developed practice that is actually coming to its culmination in the first century. It's not something new, okay? Throughout the Old Testament, widows functioned as examples of the dispossessed. Think about Tamar, okay? Tamar was dispossessed. It wasn't official, but when you read the text closely, you can see that Judah wanted nothing to do with her. And so he dispossessed her back to her mother's home, her father's home, when she should have, according to the customs and the culture of the day, stayed in his home and been married off to the next son. But after his sons had died in succession, he wanted to protect his lineage. So he defied the cultural custom and he dispossessed Tamar. Think about Ruth. Ruth made a decision to follow Naomi. And because she made a decision to follow Naomi, she was not only dispossessed by her family, but she was dispossessed by the nation of Moab. What about the ancient Near Eastern culture of marriage? 
Do we know that girls could be married off at the approximate age of 13 or 14? The men were older, significantly older, which, if we think about it, this could be the result of the large class of young widows. I've already mentioned Tamar and Ruth. Read 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9-16 through 16 when you go home today. Paul has a whole section in his letter on the young widows. You think there was enough of a group in existence in the life and ministry of Paul that he dedicated a section of his pastoral epistle to Timothy on how to run and rule and manage the young widows for their benefit? Yeah. It's clear. We just read by these details. Paul mentions this class and cast of people because there is a need for them, not just in the church, but across the world. What can be known about the widow herself in Jesus communicating that she's standing before the judge? Clearly she has no male representation. And again, this is not new to the text. Think about the book of Numbers when the daughters lose their father and they want the land and they go to Moses and they say, we should be the ones to inherit. But Torah has nothing to say about this. What say you? And Moses says, let me go to God. (laughs) And he comes back with a ruling in their favor. So this widow obviously has no male representation. Think about how lonely she must be in her appeal for justice. She's got no patron of any kind. In the first century, if you didn't have a spouse, you might have a patron. And a patron could be both male or female. Paul had both male and female patrons. In Philippi, Lydia was Paul's patron. If Paul needed a patron in a Gentile-represented city, don't you think a widow might need representation? (laughs) When we pause for a moment, saints, and we just sit with the Word of God, it speaks loud and clear to those who have ears to hear. This is the backdrop of everything that Jesus is saying. And the majority of what we got for the context of the parable came from the same author in volume 2. And the rest of it, the majority came from the Old Testament, which was the Bible of Israel. Genesis to Malachi. And what I referenced in Paul is what Peter says is on par with Scripture in 2 Peter, the difficult things that Paul has to tell us. Everything that I've mentioned falls under the umbrella or the category of the inspired Word of God. So you have a firm foundation to stand on. It's not your pastor's opinion. It's not Matt's teaching. It's God's Word. Now, now, saints, we're ready to look at the parable. The picture, the mosaic should be coming into focus. And as it's coming into focus, let's look at the parable. Verse 1. 
And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Who is the original audience that Jesus is speaking to? Why is he worried that they might not persevere? What's the point of the teaching if you're just going to persevere anyways? Jesus is concerned for his disciples. Warnings serve a purpose. Otherwise, they're not a warning at all. (laughs) And you can see the heart of the Messiah. He recognizes the frailty of those whom he has chosen. What's the warning for, saints? Who's the audience? He ain't speaking to the Pharisees. This is the master of the universe, the creator and the sustainer, who recognizes their frailty. Do you think he knows yours? What's his instructions? If you want to persevere, what must you do? Pray. What must you do? If you want to persevere, pray. Don't just fall on the sword of God's sovereignty and ignore human responsibility. Don't do it. I'm not saying that God is not sovereign. God is sovereign. He has authority over all things. And in his authority, he has called you to pray and be responsible to pray faithfully. (laughs) And the implication is if you don't, what? You will lose heart. You will not persevere. You will not cross the finish line. This needs to be a sober reminder for those of you who are just on Holy Spirit cruise control thinking you can live your life however you want, do whatever you want, think whatever you want, say whatever you want, support whatever you want, and champion whatever you want, even when it flies a flag in the face of God's Word. The church, me, I need to hear this. I need this word. Verse 2. He said in a certain city, remember these are fictional stories told by the master, but they have very, very real concepts that we need to grab hold of. He said in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And in honor and shame culture, how do you appeal to a person who has no fear of God and no care what the community thinks about him? You can't. Money. It's a hard thing to even face this man knowing that in an honor and shame culture, the community can't budge him, and an appeal to God means nothing to him. How many people do we know like that in our own lives? How many people do we know like that who are encouraging you to take on that type of character, that type of nature, 
How often is our own flesh (laughs) trying to entice us to embrace a thought life that is ruled by that? In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared man nor feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now we've already discussed the evidence for the Gentile ruler. Can you imagine being a Jew seeking a Gentile's approval, execution of justice, knowing that they have a different worldview, they don't submit to Torah, (laughs) they have no interest in being loyal to Yahweh, And she's got no one to stand in her corner and champion her. I'd like to talk about how I believe the widow is not just a Jew, but a Torah-observant Jew. Leviticus 19, 17 through 18. Turn there in your Bibles. I think this is the evidence that we need to understand this woman's character and this woman's nature. Leviticus 19, Verse 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Lest you incur sin because of him, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Is she seeking vengeance against her adversary? No, she is seeking what? justice there's a difference (laughs) and again this is a word for the church today what you think is justice (laughs) it's probably skewed in what god knows as justice that's why she's standing on torah because that's the word of god given through the angels to moses at sinai for Her covenant people. Her character. Notice that her character stands in direct opposition to the unjust judge. She both loves God and respects people. Does she name her adversary? Does she tell us what they're guilty of? No. Can you see the great lengths that she's going to to protect their reputation in the midst of trying to get the wrong righted? How many of us are capable of doing that? That's what I want to know because that's what it looks like to be reviled and not revile back. (laughs) Her character stands in direct opposition. So you have two who are at societal poles and you have two whose character and nature couldn't be further from each other. The audience would have been going, oh, My goodness, what's going to happen next? And we think, I've read this parable a hundred times. No, 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 can you imagine hearing this for the first time? That's how we need to come to the Word of God. As if it is the first time, Lord, teach me. Do we have a teacher? And it's the Holy Spirit. Father, change me. Cut me with the sword that is sharper than any other sword. 
Breathe life into me with the word that is living. Transform me from the inside out. (laughs) Not for my sake, but for your glory. She loved God and she loved people. This is the hero of the story, everybody. Let's go on to verse 4 and 5. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, who else refused? Oh, it was Felix who refused for a while. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man. Here it is again. Just in case you've all missed it, I could care less about Yahweh. Hmm, that rings my ears. Oh, Pharaoh, who is Yahweh? I have neither heard of him or do I know him. <laughs> Every Jewish listener would have, ding, 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 ding. What about Haman, the one who tried to slay the Jews from Medo-Persia back to Jerusalem because of Mordecai? <laughs> What about the Maccabean revolt and those who were loyal during the intertestamental period? The audience's ears would have just been like a pinball machine. Bing, 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 bing. Man, I know that this has happened in the history of our own Bible. I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I am a self-serving individual. I could care less about justice. She's pissing me off. She's annoying me. She's pestering me. She's nagging me. She's the bane of my existence. And for that reason only, I will give her justice. I'm not interested in doing what's right. I'm not interested in bringing about what is true. I care only for myself, and it is for myself and myself only that I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The Greek is funny here. This is like literal giving a person a black eye. Now, why is that funny? Because you've got the machismo just judge, unjust judge, who doesn't fear God or man, and in the end he capitulates to the woman with no status. (laughs) Everyone in the original audience would be giggling to themselves. This is no man at all. (laughs) All bark, no bite. (laughs) Beaten by the hero of the story. Before she gives me a black eye. (laughs) Now it's the metaphor, right? But before that happens, I'll give her the very thing she's asking for. Let's close it out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect? This is the Argument from lesser to greater, okay? It's called a fortiori. That's Latin. Don't worry about that. Remember, from lesser to greater, okay? Jesus is saying how much more in this statement. If a stinking, filthy, 
wretched, evil man can execute justice for all of the wrong reasons, how much more will God not bring justice to his elect? That's a good word right there, church. We could close our Bibles and just call it. If you're not happy and you're not experiencing joy in your heart after reading and understanding that line, you better check your spiritual barometer. (laughs) That is the best news ever. You got a problem with answering the the, the question of evil? (laughs) You're struggling with theodicy? This is where you need to live your life. Jesus himself says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. (laughs) I'll give justice. (laughs) Now, don't get it twisted. Your non-believing friends, the belligerent atheists, your agnostics are going to think that Jesus is comparing the Father to the unjust judge here. But the Father never gets tired of hearing from his children. Okay, so don't create a doctrine out of this, okay? He never wearies. He doesn't oppose those in need. He gives grace to the humble. Okay? It's not a comparison. It's a contrast. How much more will God from the lesser, the unjust judge, to the greater, the righteous creator and sustainer of the universe? And then you see two questions. You know? Is he going to give justice to the ones who cry day and night? The answer is, of course. (laughs) Will he delay long over them? Of course not. And this is where the church is going, Matt, you don't know my life. You don't know how long I've had to suffer, how much God is asking me to endure. Oh, I do. (laughs) Stop making horizontal comparisons. You need a perspective shift. God is not delaying anything. He is patient because he wills that none should perish. He's not delaying. If anything, the church can hasten the coming. Read 2 Peter. If anything, the church can hasten his coming if we're obedient to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. (laughs) Who's he talking to? The disciples. Of course he's going to execute justice. And of course not will he delay. God's patience a day to a thousand years. Why? So that not one will be left behind. Again, if that doesn't bring joy to you as you think about your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister or your neighbor who you can't stand who doesn't know Christ, God's patience is not a delay. He's giving them the opportunity to turn to Him and He's expecting you to do what the widow did and represent Himself or herself in action. Did she only go to God or did she go to the judge? Both. 
as we would need to do both. Jesus' closing remarks don't end with an emphasis on the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. What does Jesus' remarks end on? He questions the faith of the disciples. Will the faith in the Greek be found on earth? Who was faithful in the parable? The widow. Will faith like the widow's be found on earth? Not just faith in anything. This chair's going to hold me up. There's something greater than me out there. No, 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 no. What are we expected to do in verse 1? Pray. Pray to who? Pray to Yahweh, who was embodied in Christ in the fullness of his glory and dwelt there bodily. We ain't talking about the friend of Muhammad or Esau of the Quran. We're talking about the man who laid it all down so that we could be reconciled back to God. That's who we're talking to. That's who we're talking about. You will not persevere if you do not develop the discipline of prayer. Me first. My little claw and my big claw, right? I need to learn how to pray more and better and often. Not because I'm trying to check a list, but because I want to be faithful and persevere. This is a confrontational question, everybody. Some of your theology leaves no room for even wrestling with the question. I'm going to remind you that that's Jesus speaking. I did my best to lay the background and the context out. I'd love to hear your retort if you disagree, but I think Jesus is saying something important to the bride. Will their faith endure or will they lose heart? Right back to verse 1. Read the parable again. Takeaways and applications. On this, our wonderful anniversary service where we're supposed to be celebrating the goodness of God. Oh, you've got a lot to celebrate because he will bring justice to those who persevere. And don't run the race as if you've crossed the finish line already because you've got a ways to go, my friends. Don't think more of yourself than you ought to because if he grafted you in, he can graft you out. Go read Romans. So what's the takeaways? What's the application from a parable like today for the church? Jesus is warning his disciples that they will experience tribulation. You will find yourself oppressed. You will be the political minority. You might have to exist in poverty and in famine. You may be divided from your family. Count the cost because tribulation is guaranteed. That's the point of praying and persevering. Suffering in this world is an equal opportunist. The rain falls on the just and it falls on the unjust. Prayer, my friends, prayer, my family, is the key to perseverance. How so? 
Write these things down. In prayer, we offer up our desires to God. Okay? We offer up our desires to God. Did the widow make her desires known? Okay. Faith like hers would require us to pray and offer up our desires to God. In offering up our desires to God, we need to understand that we are actively surrendering our will so that His will can be accomplished. It's no longer our desires that we're after. It's His desires. We make our desires known. He gives the desires of the heart to those who walk worthy. But if our desires are in line with the will of God and the Word of God, they will line up with the heart of God. So we offer up our desires to God, and in doing that, we surrender our will to His will. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. (laughs) It's not my words that you're taking issue with this morning. It's the words of the Master. We enter into conversation with Him in prayer, which means we are communing with our Father. Our desires are surrendered for His will. In entering into conversation with Him, we cast our cares on Him. Why? Another joyful passage. Because He what? He cares for us. This is good news, everybody. In prayer, we practice His presence. In prayer, we are making a practice of finding and joining and communing with the presence of God. He wants a conversation, not a dialogue, everybody. So when you are praying, don't just speak, learn to listen. Otherwise, you're engaging in a dialogue, a monologue. And a conversation requires more than one voice. In prayer, we experience His peace. Why? Because we actually hear from Him. Those who desire to persevere will take action in their lives no different than the widow in the parable. Remember that the seeming delay, from our perspective, we're taught to, pr- come, to pray, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Right? Right? We're eagerly to desire his return. But not for our sake. (laughs) Not for the alleviation of our burdens, but for his glory and exaltation when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. His return has everything to do with him and nothing to do with us. So we need to stop thinking that He is delaying and we need to remember that He is extending the same grace to everyone else that we have received. There is no delay. There is grace and patience. God's patience creates opportunity for repentance. He will return. He will return. He will vindicate but not a moment too soon. Amen. That's for the church. Here's the word for the unchurched in the house. If you have yet to believe, if you're auditing the faith, or if you're doubting that Christ is King, 
I know that a sermon like today with its different aspects about class and caste systems and the widow and her place and her role in society could be difficult. And all of a sudden, we want to read it through a postmodern lens. We want to read it through a post-Christian lens. The patriarchy. I'm here to tell you, come to the text with a willingness to learn. Don't presume to read the text through the postmodern lenses of the world. The widow is the hero of the story in the patriarchy that you're taught to hate. (laughs) It's Luke who prioritized the woman as the hero. He's making much of her. Go read about how he prioritizes Anna, who too is a widow who prays without ceasing in the temple in Luke's opening in the gospel. (laughs) It's all over, man. Luke goes out of his way to highlight the prominence of women in the early church. Read Acts. I already mentioned Lydia and Philippi. Who anointed the Messiah prior to his triumphal entry? It was a woman. It was women who displayed the courage in following all the way to the cross when every disciple was scattered. Luke teaches us this. They followed Joseph of Arimathea. Who said that? Who said that? Yes, they followed Joseph of Arimathea, not just to the grave, but to Pilate first. And then they bought the spices and they prepared the, they went to prepare the body, the first to the tomb. They not only saw Jesus in the tomb before he resurrected, because it says they knew where he was laid, but they were the first ones to bring the message of the resurrection back to the men who were hiding. (laughs) So when the world says, this book puts women down and elevates men, you tell them, no, it does not. (laughs) You take them back to the book of Ruth, where the very first anti-sexual assault um, like protocol is is implemented in any known society when Boaz says to the workers in his field, you shall not touch her or speak a word against her. Before all society could record an anti-sexual, an anti-sexual harassment clause, you find it where? In the Bible. Where? In God's people, Israel. To the widow who was a foreigner and an enemy of Israel from Moab. Don't get me started. Yeah, what's that, Leslie? Leslie? With the Torah? Yes. 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 Yep. 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 This is the Bible. This is the Word of God. This is His special revelation that teaches us His character and His nature, His will and His desires for His people. To the non-believer, to the one auditing faith, come with fresh lenses to the Word of God. Look, as we close out this morning, I need you guys to know this. On Friday, Leslie 
came to me and said, if we're going to be a praying church, we can't just be a church that prays 15 minutes before the service together. And we acknowledge that in all of the small groups, in all of the homes, and in all of the ministries like the children's church and the youth group, that prayer is a key component. But as a member of the prayer team and as someone who I am in mutual submission to, because we ought to submit to one another out of love, she's not asking me to compromise my role or my position in Christ. She's not asking me to sin. Her request was, can we quarterly schedule a day She didn't know what I was preaching on. This is how we know the Spirit of God is confirming this in our body. She said, can we schedule a time where we set aside 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. four times a year, and between those three hours, the church is open, and we just pray. And we don't just pray one person at a time. We pray all together. We don't just pray in a known tongue. We pray in the tongues of angels. We Go to God in prayer knowing that it is the prayer that is going to help the saints to persevere. Amen? Are the parables important? I would say they're vital for the Christian life. Let's close in a word of prayer. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come up here. If you need prayer, speak to them. If you desire to persevere, today is your day to seek prayer. When I'm done praying, we'll do our doxology. There's cake in the back. I would invite each of you to stay in fellowship and share your story with someone that you don't yet know. Let's close our eyes in honor and reverence to God. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth, and we want to be sanctified in the truth. For the things that I said today, Lord, that are not of you, I pray that they would be forgotten. But for the things that were said today that were carried by the Spirit, because no man speaks a word of prophecy unless he's carried along by the Spirit. If it was those words that were spoken, Lord, let those words go deep into our heart. I'm praying, God, for this church. You have been faithful to provide and to protect for three years, God. And today we acknowledge that we need to take on a greater role and responsibility in the act of prayer. So we commit... To doing that very thing, Lord. Thank you for the prompt from my sister. I know that in the hearts and minds of believers who are sitting and listening, they're standing in agreement and they will show up and they will pray when the time comes. Not because we have determined that we would do it, Lord, but because you have called us to do it. Lord, we thank you and we praise you You are worthy of it all. In Jesus' name, amen.